Chapter Two, Part Two of the Scouts of Stonewall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. The Scouts of Stonewall by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Two the foot cavalry part two not in vain had the infantry of stonewall jackson been called foot cavalry harry now for the first time saw men really march the road spun behind them and the forest swept by they were nearly all open-air virginians long of limb deep of chest and great of muscle there was no time for whispering among them and the exchange of guesses about their destination. They needed every particle of air in their lungs for the terrible man who made them march as men had seldom marched before. Jackson cast a grim eye on the long files that sank away in the darkness behind him. They march very well, he said, but they will do better with more practice. Ride to the rear, Lieutenant Kenton, and see if there are any stragglers. If you find any, order them back into line, and if they refuse to obey, shoot. Again his voice was not raised, but an electric current of fiery energy seemed to leap from this grave, somber man and to infuse itself through the veins of the lad to whom he gave the orders. Harry saluted, and, wheeling his horse, rode swiftly along the edge of the forest toward the rear. Now the spirit of indomitable youth broke forth. Many in the columns were as young as he, and some younger. In the earlier years of the war, and indeed to the very close, there was little outward respect for rank among the citizen soldiers of either army. Harry was saluted with a running fire of chaff. "'Turn your horse's head, young feller. "'The enemy ain't that way. "'He's in front. "'He's forgot his toothbrush, Bill, "'and he's going back in a hurry to get it. "'If I had a horse like that, "'I'd ride him in the right direction. "'Tell him in Winchester "'that the foot cavalry are marching a hundred miles an hour.' "'Harry did not resent these comments. "'He merely flung back an occasional comment of his own, and hurried on until he reached the rear. Then, in the dusk of the road, he found four or five men limping along, and ready when convenient to drop away in the darkness. Harry wasted no time. The fire in his blood that had come from Jackson was still burning. He snatched a pistol from his belt, and, riding directly at them, cried, "'Forward and into the ranks at once, or I shoot!' "'But we are lame, sir,' cried one of the men. "'See, my foot is bleeding.' He held up one foot, and red drops were falling from the ragged shoe. "'It makes no difference,' cried Harry. "'Barefooted men should be glad to march for Stonewall Jackson. One, two, three, hurry, all of you, or I shoot.' The men took one look at the flaming face, and broke into a run for the rear guard. 
Harry saw them in the ranks, and then beat up the woods on either side of the road, but saw no more stragglers or deserters. Then he galloped through the edge of the forest, and rejoined the general at the head of the command. "'Were they all marching?' asked Jackson. "'All but four, sir.' "'And the four. "'They're marching now, too.' "'Good. How far are we from the arsenal?' "'About eight miles, sir.' "'Isn't it nearer nine? "'I should say nearer eight, sir.' "'You should know. At any rate, we'll soon see.' Jackson did not speak to him again directly, evidently keeping him at his side now for sure guidance, but he continually sent other aides along the long lines to urge more speed. The men were panting and despite the cold of the winter night, beads of perspiration stood on every face. But Jackson was pitiless. He continually spurred them on, and now Harry knew with the certainty of fate that he would get there in time. He would reach Hartford before fresh Union troops could come. He was as infallible as fate. There was no breath left for whispering in the ranks of Jackson's men. Nothing was heard but the steady beat of marching feet, and now and then the low command of an officer. But such commands were few. There were no more stragglers, and the chief himself rode at their head. They knew how to follow. The moon faded, and many of the stars went back into infinite space. A dusky film was drawn across the sky, and at a distance the fields and forests blended into one great shadow. Harry looked back at the brigade, which wound in a long, dark coil among the trees. He could not see faces of the men now, only the sinuous black shape of illimitable length that their solid lines made. This long black shape moved fast, and occasionally it gave forth a sinister glitter, as stray moonbeams fell upon blade or bayonet. It seemed to Harry that there was something deadly and inevitable about it, and he began to feel sorry for the Union troops who were besieging the village and who did not know that Stonewall Jackson was coming. He cast a sidelong glance at the leader. He rode, leaning a little further forward in the saddle than usual, and the wintry blue eyes gazed steadily before him. Harry knew that they missed nothing. "'You are sure that we are on the right road, Mr. Kenton?' said Jackson. "'Quite sure of it, sir.' The general did not speak again for some time. Then, when he caught the faint glimmer of water through the dark, he said, "'This is the creek, is it not?' "'Yes, sir.' and the Yankees can't be more than a mile away. And it's a full hour until dawn. The reinforcements for the enemy cannot have come up. Lieutenant Kenton, I wish you to stay with me. I will have a messenger tell Colonel Talbot that for the present you are detached for my service. Thank you, sir, said Harry. Why? I wish to see how you crumple up the enemy cold blue eyes gleamed for a moment. 
Harry more than guessed the depth of passion and resolve that lay behind the impenetrable mask of Jackson's face. He felt again the rays of the white-hot fire that burned in the great Virginian's soul. A few hundred yards further, and the brigade began to spread out in the dusk. Companies filed off to right and left, and in a few minutes came shots from the pickets, sounding wonderfully clear and sharp in the stillness of the night. Red dots from the rifle muzzles appeared here and there in the woods, and then Harry caught the glint of late starshine on the eaves of the warehouse. Jackson drew his horse a little to one side of the road, and Harry, obedient to orders, followed him. A regiment, massed directly behind them, drew up close. Harry saw that it was his own invincibles. There were Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire, on horseback, looking very proud and eager. Further away were Langdon and St. Clair, also mounted, but Harry could not see the expression on their faces. Tell Colonel Talbot to have the charge sounded and then to attack with all his might, said Jackson to his young aide. Harry carried the order eagerly and rejoined the general at once. The drums of the Invincibles beat the charge, and on both sides of them the drums of other regiments played the same tune. Then the drum beat was lost in that wild and thrilling shout, the rebel yell, more terrible than the war-hoop of the Indians, and the whole brigade rushed forward in a vast half-circle that enclosed the village between the two horns of the curve. The scattered firing of the pickets was lost in the great shout of the South, and by the time the northern sentinels could give the alarm to their main body, the rush of Jackson's men was upon them, clearing out the woods and fields in a few instants, and driving the Union horsemen in swift flight northward. Harry kept close to his general. He saw a spark of fire shoot from the blue eye, and the nostrils expand. Then the mask became as impenetrable as ever. He let the reins fall on the neck of Little Sorrel, and watched his men as they swept into the open, past the warehouse, and followed the enemy into the forest beyond. But the bugles quickly sounded the recall. It was not Jackson's purpose to waste his men in frays which could produce little. The pursuing regiments returned reluctantly to the open, where the inhabitants of the village were welcoming Jackson with great rejoicings. The encounter had been too swift and short to cause great loss, but all the stores were saved, and Captain Sherburne and Captain McGee rode forward to salute their commander. "'You made a good defense,' said Stonewall Jackson, crisply and briefly. "'We begin the removal of the stores at once. Wagons will come up shortly for that purpose. Take your cavalry, Captain Sherburne, and scout the country. If they need sleep, they can get it later when there is nothing else to do.' Captain Sherburne saluted, and Harry saw his face flush with pride. The indomitable spirit of Jackson was communicated fast to all his men. The sentence to more work appealed to Sherburne with much greater force than the sentence of rest could have done. 
in a moment he and his men were off searching the woods and fields in the direction of the union camp ride back on the road lieutenant kenton and tell the wagons to hurry said general jackson to harry before i left winchester i gave orders for them to follow and we must not waste time here yes sir said harry as he turned and rode into the forest through which they had come he too felt the same emotion that had made the face of sherburne flush with pride what were sleep and rest to a young soldier following a man who carried victory in the hollow of his hand not the victory of luck or chance but the victory of forethought of minute preparation and of courage he galloped fast and the hard road gave back the ring of steel-shod hoofs a silver streak showed in the eastern sky the dawn was breaking he increased his pace the woods and fields fled by then he heard the cracking of whips and the sound of voices urging on reluctant animals another minute and the long line of wagons was in sight straining up the road hurry up cried harry to the leader who drove bareheaded has old jack finished the job asked the man yes how long did it take him about five minutes i win called the man to the second driver just behind him you lied it would take him ten minutes but i said not more than seven at the very furthest the train broke into a trot and harry turning his horse rode by the side of the leader how did you know it would take general jackson so little time to scatter the enemy the boy asked the man cause i know old jack but he has not yet done much in independent command no but i've seen him getting ready and i've watched him he sees everything and he prays i tell you he prays i ain't a praying man myself but when a man kneels down in the bushes and talks humble and respectful to his god and then rises up and jumps at the enemy it's time for that enemy to run i'd rather be attacked by the worst bully and desperado that ever lived than by a praying man you see i want to live and what chance have i got agin a man that's not only not afraid to die but that's willing to die and rather glad to die knowing that he's going straight to heaven and eternal joy i tell you young man that unbelievers ain't ever got any chance against believers no not in nothing i believe you're right right of course i'm right why did old jack order these wagons to come along and get them stores cause he believed he was going to save em and maybe he saved em cause he believed he was going to do it it works both ways get up the shout of get-up was to his horses which added a little more to their pace and now harry saw troops coming back to meet them and form an escort in half an hour they were at the village already the ammunition and supplies had been brought forth and were stacked ready to be loaded on the wagons general jackson was everywhere riding back and forth on his sorrel horse directing the removal just as he had directed the march and the brief combat his words were brief but always dynamic 
he seemed insensible to weariness. It was now full morning, wintry, and clear. The small population of the village and the people from the surrounding country, intensely southern and surcharged with enthusiasm, were bringing hot coffee and hot breakfast for the troops. Jackson permitted them to eat and drink in relays. As many as he could get at the task helped to load the wagons. Little compulsion was needed. Officers themselves toiled at boxes and casks. The spirit of Jackson had flowed into them all. "'I've gone into training,' said Langdon to Harry. "'Training? What kind of training, Tom?' "'I see that my days of play are over forever, "'and I'm practicing hard so I can learn how to do without food, sleep, or rest for months at a time. "'It's well your training,' interrupted St. Clair. I foresee that you're going to need all the practice you can get. Everything's loaded in the wagons now, and I'll wager you my chances of promotion against one of our new Confederate dollar bills that we start inside of a minute. The word minute was scarcely out of his mouth when Jackson gave the sharp order to march. Sherburne's troops sprang to saddle and led the way, their bugler blowing a mellow salute to the morning and victory. Many whips cracked, and the wagons bearing the precious stores swung into line. Behind came the brigade, the foot cavalry. The breakfast and the loading of the wagons had not occupied more than half an hour. It was yet early morning when the whole force left the village and marched at a swift pace toward Winchester. General Jackson beckoned to Harry. "'Ride with me,' he said. "'I have notified Colonel Talbot that you are detached from his staff and will serve on mine.' Although loath to leave his companions, Harry appreciated the favor and flushed with pleasure. "'Thank you, sir,' he said briefly. Jackson nodded. He seemed to like the lack of effusive words. Harry knew that his general had not tasted food. Neither had he. He had actually forgotten it in his keenness for his work, and now he was proud of the fact. He was proud, too, of the comradeship of abstention that it gave him with Stonewall Jackson. As he rode in silence by the side of the great commander, he made for himself an ideal. He would strive in his own youthful way to show the zeal, the courage, and the untiring devotion that marked the general. The sun, wintry but golden, rose higher and made fields and forests luminous. But few among Jackson's men had time to notice the glory of the morning. It seemed to Harry that they were marching back almost as swiftly as they had come. Langdon was right, and more. They were getting continuous practice not only in the art of living without food, sleep, or rest, but also of going everywhere on a run instead of a walk. Those who survived it would be incomparable soldiers. Winchester appeared, and the people came forth rejoicing. Jackson gave orders for the disposition of the stores, 
and then rode at once to a tent. He signaled to Harry also to dismount and enter. An orderly took the horses of both. "'Sit down at the table there,' said Jackson. "'I want to dictate to you some orders.' Harry sat down. He had forgotten to take off his cap and gloves, but he removed one gauntlet now, and picked up a pen which lay beside a little inkstand, a pad of coarse paper on the other side. Jackson himself had not removed hat or gauntlets either, and the heavy cavalry cloak that he had worn on the ride remained flung over his shoulders. He dictated a brief order to his brigadiers, Loring, Edward Johnson, Garnet, the commander of the Stonewall Brigade, and Ashby, who led the cavalry, to prepare for a campaign and to see that everything was ready for a march in the morning. Harry made copies of all the orders and sealed them. "'Deliver every one to the man to whom it is addressed,' said Jackson, "'and then report to me. But be sure that you say nothing of their contents to anybody.' The boy, still burning with zeal, hurried forth with the orders, delivered them all, and came back to the tent, where he found the general dictating to another aide. Jackson glanced at him, and Harry, saluting, said, "'I have given all the orders, sir, to those to whom they were intended.' "'Very well,' said Jackson. "'Wait, and I shall have more messages for you to carry.' He turned to the second aide, but seemed to remember something, looked at his watch. "'Have you had any breakfast, Mr. Kenton?' he said. "'No, sir.' "'Any sleep?' "'Yes, sir.' when i slept well sir night before last harry's reply was given in all seriousness jackson smiled the boy's reply and his grave manner pleased him i won't give you any more orders just now he said go out and get something to eat but do not be gone longer than half an hour you need sleep too but that can wait I shall be glad to carry your orders, sir. Now, the food can wait, too. I am not hungry. Harry spoke respectfully. There was, in truth, an appealing note in his voice. Jackson gave him another and most searching glance. I think I chose well when I chose you, he said. But go, get your breakfast. It is not necessary to starve to death now. We may have a chance at that later. The faintest twinkle of grim humor appeared in his eyes, and Harry, withdrawing, hastened at once to the Invincibles, where he knew he would have food and welcome in plenty. St. Clair and Langdon greeted him with warmth and tried to learn from him what was on foot. "'There's a great bustle,' said Langdon, "'and I know something big is ahead.' This is the last day of the old year, and I know that the new year is going to open badly. I'll bet you anything that before tomorrow morning is an hour old, this whole army will be running hot-foot over the country, more afraid of Stonewall Jackson than 50,000 of the enemy. But you've been in training for it, said Harry, with a laugh. So I have, but I don't want to train too hard. 
Harry ate and drank and was back at General Jackson's tent in twenty minutes. He had received a half hour, but he was learning already to do better than was expected of him. End of chapter two, part two. Recording by Bill Mosley, Bernardo, Texas, USA.